Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 13th, 2019. And this is episode 2380 of the Survival Podcast, 2380. Do I sound happy? I am, because it's an even number. And it's an even number with a zero, and I like that. Yes, I know I'm weird. I know I have a pattern recognition thing with numbers that makes me weird like that. Um, but yeah, it just that makes me happy. What also makes me happy is this interview day, and i got a great guest coming on. His name is Ron Whitehurst, and he's going to talk to us about biological pest control. Wouldn't it be great if instead of having to worry about some sort of a chemical or going out and mechanically picking animals, you know, critters off of your plants or whatever, if you could just set up a system where the biology did the majority of pest control? And here's the beauty of biological pest control. Let's say that you have a pest, and a predator that kills that pest is something like a green lacewing. It's a pet predator insect. And that pest comes to your garden, and he's there. And you started using a toxin. You went ahead and went conventional, and that pest developed an immunity to that toxin. So now there's more of that pest, and you can't kill them with the toxin you used to kill them, so now you've got a superbug. Or you try to use an organic control. They also developed a method of, of you know immunity to that organic control. You're not going to develop an immunity to being eaten. That's the beauty of biological pest control. If you have one critter that eats another critter, there is no immunity to having your head ripped off and your body consumed. So that's what we're going to talk about today, just to be a little bit blunt. This guy, Ron, is a good dude, man. He's been doing this a long time. He's a California licensed pest control advisor with his wife, Jan. They're co-owners of Rincon Viota, uh, Vitova, yeah, that's how I say it, insectaries. Uh, they produce and market supplies for biological pest control. He's been communicating about organic methods of farming and gardening for over 30 years. Uh, and he's been running his company since 1997. Uh, in 2016, uh, Rincon Vi- Vi- Vitofa Insectaries won the Regenerative Business Prize. So this guy's been around a while and been doing great things for a long time. He's going to be on to talk to us about all of this stuff in just a few moments. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Safe Castle is awesome, man. They have everything for your prepping needs from guns to gardens, practical to tactical, and everything in between. They're an incredibly loyal sponsor. Uh, it will be this the end of this month. The end of this month, Safe Castle will hit 10 years of being a sponsor and an MSB supporter. I don't know that there are any other podcasters out there that are blessed enough to have multiple sponsors that have been with them for over five years, and I doubt there's very many of them out there that have any sponsors been with them 10 years. And that kind of kicks off a thing, too, with our sponsors, guys. Uh, 10-year anniversaries of sponsors are coming up, like, left and right at this point. Next sponsor, KnifeKits.com, is a perfect example. Um... Steve from Knife Kits came to me about June. So June, will they'll be here with us 10 years, this June in 2019. And uh, so they're just awesome as well. And, you know, Knife Kits are just a great way to create projects between you and your kids or to enter into a hobby or eventually even into a trade. 
You should check them out, man. They make making knives easy, whether you're a master bladesmith or you're just getting started. Everything you need is there. Lots of other cool stuff for making sheets, leather surprise, Kydex, you name it. They've got it all. They're at knifekits.com. Remember, Safecastle Royal and Knife Kits both do discounts for members of the MSB. On that note, um, the MSB is on sale, but I'm not going to give you the discount code. Um, this week, I'm running a little postscript in the daily email. And that gives you a discount code, and you can join the MSB at a really great deal. What is it? I'm not going to tell you. You have to be on the email list. Uh, this is your last day. If you're not on the mail list and you don't get on it today, I don't think it's going to help you tomorrow, because if you get on it tomorrow, then Friday when the mail comes out, it's not going to be there. Uh, just the way I'm doing it this time. And, uh, you know, consider joining the MSB. It's how we pay the bills around here. It's how we're able to do this show for you. It's how we're able to bring you great guests like Ron. It's how we, how we do everything. It's how we've done now 10 episodes of the Bug Out trailer uh, series with Stephen Harris. I don't really think that there's anybody out there that puts out consistent quality content in the amount and the volume and the variety that we do here. And I can do all of that because of you. So I probably haven't said it in a while. So let me just say to everybody that's ever listened to my show, shared my show, bought products through my website, been a sponsor of the show, Uh, been an MSB member, still is an MSB member, etc. Thank you. I am so blessed in my life because of your support. Uh, TSP is not a podcast. It is a community of communities. And that, I, I think that's something really unique. And, and I know that back you know, over 10 years ago when I was consulting in, in marketing and development and things like that, um, a lot of customers wanted that. That's what they, they didn't even know that's what they wanted, but that's what they wanted. They, you know, social media was just really getting hot. Uh, viral marketing was really becoming a thing. And what people really wanted was to create a community, and they wanted the community to be so big that it was self-replicating, and self-replicating communities create sub-communities. And I don't know that we were ever able to work with anybody to the point where they could actually do it because it requires something that very few people are willing to do. Letting go. For that to happen, you have to, as an entity, let this thing you've created become what it wants to become. And that's what happened here. And a lot of times we'd kickstart it, like planting a tree. Start the Zello group, get the hell out of the way, let the Zello people run it. You know, start a forum, get out of the way, let the forum people run it. And because of that, we have all these communities and sub-communities that are doing so many things in the world, and it's all because of you guys supporting me and helping me and being part of it. So thank you. With that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest at this time, Ron Whitehurst. He's going to tell us how to use biological control methods To, uh, to manage our gardens and our lands against pests. With that, hey, Ron, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, thanks. I'm uh, looking forward to chatting with you. I've been um, listening to you for about five years now and really respect what you're doing. Well, thank you for that. I, I wasn't sure if, like, how you found out about us. That's really cool. Um, I've got you on today to talk about biological pest control, and I, I think that's an awesome topic. Um, but... What I kind of want to do so the audience can get to kind of know who you are as a person, take us back. I don't know. You're like in you're in high school, spacing out study hall or something. And how does that lead you down a path that leads you to working with, you know, beneficial insects for for pest control? That's there's got to be some wonkiness to that path. Right, right. Um, I've always had a garden. My dad had a garden when I was a little kid. And uh, working with plants and so on, um, studied chemistry in college and, and saw all the cool things you could do with, with the chemicals, but then um, rejected that path because I knew that, that um, it was uh, much 
much more interesting to work with the biology. And the uh, complications if you screwed up were, were a lot less severe. So I grew up in uh, Indianapolis in the middle of corn soybean fields, and, and now they're all you know GMO corn and soy sprayed with Roundup. So um, appreciate um, working with nature. I uh, think it's a, a really good idea that um, uh, we've got this, seem to have this as a culture, um, you know, controlling nature. And... Um, uh on from an engineering standpoint you know that kind of makes sense but what if we win what if we dominate really win over nature so in um uh 2017 there was a group from um an uh, uh, entomological society of uh Crefield in Germany kind of noticed that oh uh, there's been a 75% decline in total mass of insects they've been collecting in these malaise traps over about a 30-year period. So um, the um, uh, translation of that is the bug splat index. When you're driving along, uh, you used to have to stop and clean off your windshield about every hour or so just so you could see through it because of all the bugs splattered on, on the windshield. You don't have to do that anymore. It's like good news, bad news, you know, that um, um, there's a lot fewer insects. We've, we've had uh, a major effect on our environment, and uh, it's not looking good, you know, if, if, we, if we really succeed in dominating over nature. There's so I've been looking at, at farming, you know, in harmony with nature. And so um, we get, you know, all this wonderful produce and manage our landscapes and all that. Uh, but without using any any toxic uh, pesticides or uh, synthetic fertilizers. You know, um, let's kind of talk about the, the basic principles of a biologically-based integrated pest management system. One of the things I pointed out during mm -hmm. the intro segment was that if we – first of all, I want to back up a second. Two incredibly profound things that you said back there. One was what if we win – Mm -hmm. I've never yeah. heard anybody phrase it that way, but when you said that, the hair on my arms went up. Like, yeah. like that's not a good thing. The yeah. other thing was the insects hitting the window shield. I, I, I went back in time about 25 years when you said that, and remember mm -hmm. driving through Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and you know, going, I got to buy. Back at the time, bug guards were new for the front of a pickup truck, and I had like right. a square-bodied Chevy, and it was just like, <laughs> and, I, and I never even realized I haven't seen that happen. Mm -hmm. For a long, long time. And, you know, I don't miss it from the standpoint of not being able to see through my windshield. But, yeah, it, it, it's pretty prominent. So, man, bang on right at the beginning. But mm -hmm. when we go into the basic principles of how we do this, mm -hmm. integrated pest management program, one of the things I said in the intro was that, you know, if we do come up with a toxin and it kills a certain insect mm -hmm. and that insect becomes immune to it, eventually we end up with an entire species that's immune to it. But mm -hmm. if that insect is predated on by a green lacewing, you don't become immune to being to having your head chewed off and your body eaten, right? Like You can't right. become immune like that. to that, so it seems like a better way, but what are the, the basic principles to getting this done right? Because I think it has to go more than we just buy a package of lacewings and throw them out in our garden. Right, right. Yeah, we, um, we endorse that. We're very much into what's called conservation biological control. Um, the um, I work with... Um, uh, Rincon Vitova Insectaries. My wife is the, the president and um, 
Um, I'm um, another corporate board. So we're in a little corporation. Um, but um, it was started by her father and father in um, 1950. And uh, he worked uh, with farmers, walking them hand in hand through this process of getting off of the toxic pesticides and setting up a, a biological uh, program to control the pest. So he had five features that he regarded as, as the, the key kind of parts of a biologically based integrated pest management program. And um, the first one is, is to um, um, build habitat, uh, have some place where the beneficial insects can uh, be, you know, when you don't have any crop in the field, in a field situation or, or um, in a yard situation, you know, get some diversity there. So some flowering plants, some flowering weeds, doesn't have to be anything fancy, just anything that's got some flower that has some uh, pollen and nectar to it. And then uh, monitor the insect ecology. If you're thinking about uh, uh, spraying a pesticide, first you know, check and see if the the pest is there, you know, uh, before you get going around spraying it. We used to uh, be in these calendar spray programs that you know you just had this this series of sprays that you would use uh, for a, a particular crop, you know, going through the year. But first, you know, check and see what is there as far as the pest goes and as far as the beneficial goes. Um, then if you have a pest, you know, uh, think about, you know, using the, the softest available material. Uh, there's all kinds of soft pesticides, like uh, soap and water is a fantastic pesticide. And we've got, you know, at least a millennium of use history with that stuff. Just, you know, don't get it in your eyes, right? And um, then, um, and sometimes, you know, even water is a really dandy pesticide in certain situations. You know, you, you mist plants with um, just plain water and it will uh, suppress the spider mites. Uh, they like it hot and dry, so um, the uh, water in the plant will reduce the temperature and increase the humidity and make them less competitive with the uh, predator mites. And then, um, yeah, <laughs> generally, yeah. yeah. Sometimes you have to pay for it. <laughs> God give it gives it to us for free, and then um, um, uh, release beneficial insects. That um, if you um, uh, if you're working on building the ecology, sometimes you need a little help, you know, from our friends um, in the process of building your ecology, and so we uh, supply beneficial insects and um, uh, help farmers and gardeners to um, uh, get through that first, you know, three years while they're building the diversity on their farm so that they can uh, grow the beneficial insects eventually by the way that they farm. And so uh, we um, uh, supply 50 different insects, uh, six or seven uh, different um, uh, insect-eating nematodes and handful of um, of um, uh, microbes that kill the insects, and then a uh, range of um, uh, other products that can be used to, to manage the insects without actually using anything that's toxic. Very cool. I mean, what you, you know, adding the beneficial insects, I think, is great. And so my <laughs> comment, of, I don't think you can just do that. Like, you really right. covered that well. It has to be something else. Otherwise, you let them go, and they eat whatever's there, and then they leave. And they don't come back, and they don't breed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so you have to build habitat. 
And I kind of liken it to like yeah. also, you know, seeding uh, things initially mm-hmm. with the insects being a, a, almost like a seed. So mm-hmm. right now, if I walk around this property, I've been here five years. This place was barren. It, it looked like a desert. I'm, I'm only, I've only got about best case scenario. I've got a foot of soil on top of rock, and worst case, wow. I've got four inches. But yet, like spring is already starting this spring here in North Texas, and you know I've got wild daikon radish coming up that I planted five years ago now. And if uh-huh. I hadn't if I hadn't put that there and traditionally brought that seed in, then I wouldn't have that happening today. So that's a lot with the beneficial insects as well. You kind of you buy them, you bring them in, and you build a population up. Mm-hmm. But to do that, what you were saying is we have to build habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, What are some ways to build habitat on a garden or farm to attract and grow and cultivate these beneficials? Yeah, the, the basic thing is biodiversity. Get, get, mix it up. That um, uh, There's um, a lot of crop plants, um, like if you're growing cabbage, if you um, throw um, a very small percentage of uh, alyssum seed uh, in with the cabbage seed and, and broadcast that or drill it in, then um, you'll have these little plants that... Um, have a wonderful source of nectar that don't compete with the uh, the crop plant and that will uh, give uh, the beneficial insects some really good habitat so that they can um, um, uh, host the beneficial insects that will in turn control the pests on the plant. We've been developing a um, range of different mixes. We've got about uh, 12, 14 mixes now of uh, seeds that you can plant and they will uh, grow these plants that have different kinds of flowers and the idea being that you you have something blooming um, all the time all through the year and then a diversity of of flower structure so different kinds of of, uh, different plant families you know like uh, aster family, mint family, um, parsley family on on and on and so You can plant a little uh, strip of these or a little patch of these wherever the soil isn't doing much uh, work for you. So along uh, field margins, ditch banks, that sort of thing, and a home garden, you know, where you park the um, uh, the trash cans, that sort of thing. Uh, throw a handful of wild wildflower seeds there, and uh, you'll be able to uh, grow some flowers that will help you um, uh, manage your pests. So the the basics are that um, a lot of beneficial insects uh, have a phase, a growth uh, uh, phase in their life cycle where they're not feeding on the pest, like green lacewing, which is the insect that we use for our um, uh, logo, uh, is a vegetarian as an adult. And so uh, they're not going to be eating much in the way of, of pests or whatever. But they feed on pollen and nectar from the plants, and then the, the sugary poop, the honeydew, from the aphids, whitefly, mealybug, that are pest insects. And they will lay their eggs next to the um, aphids where the, uh, the uh, honeydew is. And so that will be a supplemental food for them, and they'll grow and develop. They'll lay their eggs then, Uh, next to the aphids, the eggs hatch, and the uh, lacewing larvae then will feed on the uh, uh, aphids or whitefly or whatever and um, bring their numbers down. And then they will pupate and um, uh, 
um, reproduce the uh, life cycle then. And so uh, there's some of the insects that you sell will reproduce in the environment, but the, the big thing is is just not spraying anything that's that's disruptive. What are your thoughts on this? I've said this a long time ago. I think one of the problems with developing beneficial insect habitat, if we're using any kind of chemicals, mm -hmm. is not just that obviously if I spray an insecticide on there, I'm going to kill my good good guys. But right. if, if I wipe out the bad guys, mm -hmm. then there's nothing for the good guys either in their adult or larval form to eat anymore. Right. So it's like if I wipe out all the wildebeest and zebras on the plains in Africa, the lions will leave. Mm -hmm. And so there always actually has to be some, what we would think of as bad bugs, around because that's what the, our little lions eat. So we actually want some pest insect activity so that our, our little lions have something to feed upon. We just want it kept in balance and in control. Right, right. Yeah. So the emphasis that we like to to focus on is, is that... Um, we want a, a balance of the good bugs versus the bad bugs, that we're not at, interested in absolute numbers, but uh, what's the relative ratio of the beneficial insects to the pest? Uh, uh, Everett Dietrich Deek, our founder, uh, developed this vacuum insect net, and he would use that to educate the farmers about the value of habitat next to their field. He would uh, suck up some of the um, uh, insects off of the flowering weeds next to the field. He'd show it to the farmer and say, see here uh, on these flowering plants, uh, there's um, some of your pest in here, but look at these guys. These are the predators and the parasites and stuff that are feeding on your pest. Then he would vacuum the plants and you find that there's mostly the pests there and a few beneficials. And so he'd uh, show them that here, here's a lot of pests here. So you need to keep that row of flowering weeds there to supply the beneficials to come over and feed on these pests. So he used it as an educational tool when he was working with farmers to, to uh, educate them about the value of habitat. That's, that's, then, that's amazing. Then there's, then there's some of the things that, that you know we've been thinking about more and more uh, when we think about... Um, uh, what does it really mean to build habitat for the beneficials? So we're a big fan of uh, Dr. Elaine Ingham and um, uh, the soil food web approach and um, uh, see that uh, uh, biocontrol starts in the root zone and comes on up, that, that when we're fertilizing, we want to think about fertilizing with uh, compost and with um, organic matter that will feed the, the microbes in the soil. <laughs> Go ahead, does a cough. That then in turn feed the, um, uh, the plant, and they also, uh, in succession, they, they feed the um, uh, microarthropods and then the, the uh, macroarthropods, the insects that you can actually see, you know, like the predatory ground beetles, the wall spiders, and things like that. The... Um, the entomologists that are working banker, banker's hours just see those on the ground, but the entomologists that go out at night and uh, look on the, in the canopy at night, they'll see that the, um, uh, the uh, ground beetles and the um, uh, wall spiders are actually up in the canopy feeding on your pest. 
And so there's uh, the value of, of feeding with compost. Then there's mulch that uh, uh, we like to see any kind of mulch that decomposes, that when it decomposes, it feeds the decomposer insects that are then in turn the food for the, the uh, predators that are on the surface of the ground. And so uh, we're looking at um, uh, creating as much diversity as we can. In uh, nature, you know, you only see bare soil, you know, in a, um, um, like a disaster situation along eroded ditch banks, um, along eroded streams, you know, when there's a volcanic eruption or a, a landslide or something like that. Uh, in natural situations, you know, it's very rare to see to be able to actually see the soil. It's always covered with um, uh, with leaves or, or um, some kind of plant cover. And so we want to go for that uh, in our uh, gardens as well. So you can have a uh, living mulch in gardens of, of things, you know, like the, the alyssum and some other low-growing plants. And in uh, farming situations between trees and vines, we like to see a, um, a mowed perennial uh, cover crop of a mixture of grasses and clovers to uh, feed that that complex of organisms in the soil uh, that in turn you know supplies the the beneficial insects that feed on the, on the uh, pests on on the surface of your plants. Yeah, I was gonna, as you were saying that I was just thinking my like my favorite living mulch is is clover. Uh, yeah. white, white New Zealand, um, Dutch white, uh, crimson, all of that. It's it's amazing what that does, and that gives you flowers too. I mean, and you're yeah. like, oh, it, it's a weed. No, no, no. And if you're growing, let's say you're just a gardener and you're growing pepper plants, there is no way that that clover can outcompete that pepper plant as far as for vertical sunlight. It can't happen. It just, yeah. you know, yeah. it just doesn't grow that tall. You might have to prune a little back here and there, but it's it's fantastic. Of course, Masanuba Fukuoka, that was like his go-to was clover. Right. And and there's a wide range of different kinds of clovers that grow in different kinds of soils, you know, even like really alkali soils and that sort of thing. And um, you just talk to a seedsman, you know, and um, you can find a mix of, of uh, clovers and grasses that are uh, green, summer green or winter green, you know, depending upon what you're doing and the fit, you know, with your particular soil and exposure and that sort of thing. So we're just really impressed with, you know, the, the depth of knowledge of, of um, the seedsmen that work with the cover crops and and so on. Yeah, I, th I think people will find, like, if you live in a place where something maybe, the, and I do, where a lot of places on my property still clover has problems, like some of the medics will fill that role, like black medic and south uh Sal, Salvamedic, I think is what it's called. Anyway, I have it growing here, and it's really kind of taken off after a couple of years of working on it. So there's always something. Yeah. We also have something here that I hate, um, mm -hmm. but I see in your notes that it can be very beneficial. I don't know if the ones I have can be beneficial, because I have the evil ones, the fire ants. But there's a role that uh, ants play, right? Right, right. So when um, we see any kind of honeydew uh, pest, you know, the aphids, white fly, mealy bug, uh, scale, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, first thing we want to do is look and see if the ants are working those um, insects. They uh, like to sh collect the sugary poop, and that's one of the major food sources for an ant colony when there's um, um, 
those insects are available. And uh, they harvest that, take the uh, the food back to the, the colony, especially the queens, and feed it around. And um, uh, they get really pissed, you know, when some beneficial insect comes along to eat the uh, the uh, aphid or whitefly because they're they're taking away their candy. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can understand that. You get it's kind of like their cow that gives sugar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You get pissed, you know, when somebody tries to steal your candy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so they um, they fight off the ladybugs and uh, lacewing larvae, and they take the little parasitic uh, wasps home for dinner, and they're the main feature on the menu for that meal. And uh, so if we are going to um, get a handle on, on any of these honeydew-producing pests, we need to look at ant control. And uh, we looked for a long time trying to find a really good uh, way of controlling ants in an organic uh, farm and garden situation. And we uh, found that there's this uh, boric acid uh, syrup that works really great. Uh, Burke Bioengrill Resource Center up in uh, Berkeley uh, came up with it uh, based on some other work. And um, basically, it's a 25% sugar syrup with about a half percent boric acid um, as the toxicant. You put that in the bait station, the, the ants come, uh, get the bait, take it home, feed it to especially the queens, and it knocks out the queens. And that's the, the important part of the ant colony is those queens because they're the uh, reproductives in the uh, colony. So you knock those out, and then it, that colony is going to uh, decline. And um, uh, we've been working with this Ant Pro. It's an ant bait uh, dispenser that uh, this uh, fellow Ken Cuffer in, in Florida came up with, uh, working with the fire ants, in, in fact. And um, it's a really nice uh, uh, dispenser. It kind of looks like a, uh, a chicken water bottle. It works like a chicken water bottle. It's got a, a plastic dome on top and then this um, uh, broad base underneath it then that uh, as the ants feed on the, the bait, more is, is put into the bait tray from the reservoir so it keeps the bait fresh and uh, keeps the uh, ants supplied with a little tray of, of the, uh, the bait. And uh, so we found that very effective in a wide range of situations from home uh, around homes and so on to uh, large field situations. And uh, so we'll go in for the Argentine end, we'll use like uh, 14 bait stations to the acre and for uh, fire ants only six, six bait stations per acre will do a good job. And so you bring the ant numbers down and then um, the ants don't interfere with the process of biological control. That's really insane. I mean, I never thought of that. I always knew ants worked aphids and what have you. But I never thought about the fact that, well, obviously, they're vicious little bastards, just to be honest. And, yeah, if, yeah, if, if, if you know, a, a predator comes around and starts basically picking off their, their sugar cows, mm-hmm. well, they're going to they're gonna take that sugar, that, that predator out. Yeah. Because they just, in numbers alone, they just, you know, they, they have that ability. I despise them, uh, yeah. fire ants. I mean... You know, they're, they're bad enough when you can see them, but when they have a, a mound in a deep mm-hmm. grass and you don't know they're there and there's 80 of them on your leg before what, the first one bites you, they're, yeah. they're no fun. 
what we've killed them with is a mixture of basically compost tea and orange oil and drench, oh. drenching the mound. And, it, and then it basically improves the soil, and they all die, and then all the beneficial soil organisms come and eat their bodies. So that's nice. Right. But the bait station is, is you know, it, it's kind of like hunting versus trapping. So, like, if I have to go do that, that mound has to get big enough for me to see it. Then I have to go out there and I have to do it. But the bait stations, I really like that. We're going to have to maybe talk offline a little bit about how I can get some of those because that's – I want them gone. The other thing we found that works with, for them with, uh, is, go ahead. Another way of doing it is, is you know, direct disruption of the mounds. So if you, for uh, other than the fire ant mounds where they they get, you know, they're pretty vicious. Yeah. Uh, you can dig into the mound, and you don't need to dig it up; just disturb it. You know, just like you use a digging um, rod or a spaning fork to uh, uh, dig into the mound, break up the soil. And then that redirects energy of the colony into rebuilding the um, uh, the structure of the colony, and so then you can get some progress as to um, um, uh, controlling the pests while they're distracted. So they're they're busy reconstructing. The, they're doing a reconstruction project. They don't have time to farm. I, I got you. That's yeah, I, yeah. I was going to tell something evil like I did when I was a twisted little kid, and we would take a shovel full of one ant and throw it in the other ant's bed to watch <laughs> them fight. Um, the other thing I have found that works here is every place where I've done sheet mulching, and I've, yeah. and I've included uh, horticultural molasses in that sheet mulching, uh-huh. it drives the nematode population way up. Yeah. And, and what will happen in the spring, everything grows in, and you get a heavy rain, and the next day you see mounds pop up everywhere. And those mounds will literally pop up in a circle around there, and they won't go in there. Because they just hate that biological activity, but man, yeah. not for anything gets rid of them. I I have a special level of hatred yeah. for fire ants, and you know I know everything has its place. Yeah, their place is in South America, not here. <laughs> right? Well, they have their role, but we need to to uh, manage them so that um, uh, they serve that role, but uh, uh, they don't get in our way. I don't know if you know this. There is actually a a native. Fire ant predator, and it, it sounds like a science fiction horror film. Uh-huh. It's this little bitty fly, and it yeah. stings the fire ant in the abdomen to give you an idea how, or, or the thorax to explain how small that is. And uh-huh. then it lays one egg when it does that, and that yeah. egg develops and then crawls into the fire ant's head, eats its brain, and then the fire ant, like you know, death crew carries the dead fire ant body out and puts it in a pile. And then the little little fly thing hatches right outside of the thing and goes right back in and, and, and it propagates. They they worked on this at University of Austin, yeah. and they they tried and I think uh, uh, Aggie University, Texas Agricultural University, tried it too, and they got a very small amount of them to colonize like right on the Rio Grande. River, like way down in South Texas, but they just can't survive here. So there is a, a there is a predator that will yeah. kill this thing, but it can't live here. And they were really excited about trying to do it because they had they had done enough testing. Like it just basically it, like it, it is matched to the fire ant. Like you could put it near twenty five other species of ants, and it just doesn't care. It, it it's like these two things are made to go together, but the fire ant can adapt to what the predator can't, and that's kind of yeah. weird. Yeah, yeah. It's a called a forehead fly. Yeah, you can also use some um, biologically based baits, um, powdered egg and um, uh, vegetable oil mixed with uh, some kind of um, 
thing like uh, mycotrol, like uh, uh, Bavaria bassiana or Metaricium anisiplia, one of these insect-eating fungi uh, can be used as well. Um, I, I think it would be really neat to do some trials and um, uh, collect some uh, fire ants and uh, uh, grind them up, spray them onto some other fire ants, and then collect the ones that get sick and, and die, hmm. and then use those as your inoculant then and, and use that as the uh, basis for a, um, uh, a biologically-based bait then. That's interesting. Yeah, that's another way to go. I mean, I've tried to find a use for them since they're here. So I got this idea one time. I was going to basically go you know, piss off a mound with a shovel, stick the shovel in there, get them all over it, bang them on the side of a five-gallon bucket and collect a bunch of fire ants in a bucket, and then throw them in my ponds for my fish to eat. And yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. I better – that like, since I've never heard anybody doing that, I better check. And I went into several like pond forums and aquaponics forums, and people said, yeah, I tried to kill my fish. <laughs> so they're so, they're basically toxic to fish. Like they can eat a few, but if you like start feeding them on them, there's so much acid in, in them, and the venom, I guess, is actually a toxin, uh, even when orally consumed, that they that they kill fish. So I'm like, this these guys got to go, man. Um, yeah. You mentioned some of this already to a degree. I mean, you mentioned we can just spray water in yeah. some situations, but what are some of what you would call like in your notes you call them soft pesticides right, that would right. work and not harm your beneficials? Yeah, yeah. So one of the basics is, you know, um, it's up in water. So um, there's good old Dr. Bronner's uh, peppermint soap. So peppermint is a specific repellent for uh, spider mites, and so it's really good. So a capful to a quart of uh, water uh, makes a dandy low-impact spray. Uh, when we're, we're doing a pest control, we want to uh, start out and, and um, uh, go through a sequence of, of uh, steps when we're combating a pest population. You know, first first off, we look and see if there's some beneficial insects that are um, feeding on it. If if there are, then uh, starting out with a spray program doesn't quite make sense. And uh, you may want to just you know come back a couple of days later and see if the uh, the pest population is has developed or it, if the beneficials are winning. Um, and then. Um, uh, if you don't see any beneficials working it, then you know a spray of soft material then would make sense. And um, so there's the uh, soapy water, and then there's a number of microbial insecticides that we have now. Uh, there's um, Mycotrol or Botanigard, which have as an active uh, ingredient the Bavaria bassiana, an insect-eating fungus that. Um, uh, when the uh, fungal spores hit the insect, the spores germinate, stimulated by the wax in the cuticle, and they start growing. They, they grow into the insect, and then you have a mass of fungal hyphae where the insect used to be. And uh, the, um, these fungi are not interested in you. you know, it kind of would blow to your, your self-image maybe, but uh, they uh, uh, don't grow at... Um, at uh, human body temperature, and so they're really uh, well. They you, we used to say that they were safe, but nothing is safe anymore. It's considered to be low risk, and so uh, they um, uh, they don't bother people. Hmm. And then well, we've got about uh, four or five uh, different insect-eating fungi. Um, 
Isaria fumarasans and um, Polysiomyces uh, and um, uh, the Medrisium and uh, some bacteria the um, in the Grandivo um, that um, are um, basically organisms that eat the past insects and they have uh, generally low uh, effect, minimum effect on the beneficial insects. And so you can use them and uh, as soon as the spray material is dried and, and um, um, been on the plant for a couple of days, it's no danger to the beneficial insects then that would come in and kind of finish up the job of, of feeding on the pest. And then there's all these uh, spice oils that, um, well, there's just plain oil, just vegetable oil and, and a little bit of soap and water uh, will um, uh, suffocate a lot of different insects, especially like scale insects and mealybugs. You can spray that onto uh, the pests and um, uh, uh, kill them off. And as soon as that material is dry on the plant, it's safe for the beneficials to come onto the plant. If you spray the beneficial insects, it will kill them, but um, uh, the dried residue won't hurt them. And that's usually you want to stay um, uh, below about um, uh, 2% um, of the uh, oil and water. Uh, otherwise, you get too high a uh, concentration, you'll, you'll get um, plant damage from that. And then <clears throat> there's all these spice oils. Uh, there's a lot of products that have... Um, rosemary oil, clove oil on a, uh, in the market. And those do a really good job of killing off the, um, the pest insects. And um, uh, they'll generally harm the beneficial insects, but as soon as the spray is dry, then it will have a little bit of repellency effect, but um, it won't kill the beneficials. Uh, we've been finding more and more that the... Um, uh, the spice oils will repel beneficial insects from coming onto the plants uh, for oh maybe a week or so, and so they're not totally without um, uh, disruption to the the beneficial insect community of natural enemy complex, uh, but they're they're very low risk and and they're very uh, low risk for people. And then there's uh, some other interesting uh, things. Instead of uh, uh, purchasing the beneficial insects, you can just move them around. There's um, methyl salicylate has been found to be uh, what plants put out to attract beneficial insects to come in and feeding on the aphids that are feeding on the plant. And uh, wintergreen oil is a natural source of that. It's a wintergreen oil is about 50% methyl salicylate. Methyl salicylate is, is the, the aroma in Ben Gay, you know, all these uh, liniments that you use on, you know, on sore joints and stuff like that. And so um, it's something, you know, really familiar with. So you can um, uh, mix that uh, with some uh, what we call insect food and uh, spray that around in the environment, and then that will draw in the beneficial insects. And um, uh, you'll be just moving them around versus, you know, purchasing them or killing off the, uh, the pest insects. 
Um, uh, the insect food is one of the, the products that we put up or we give you the recipe for. Basically, it's just one part sugar, one part dried brewer's yeast. Uh, you mix that, uh, something like a uh, half pound, pound per gallon of water. And um, that makes a spray that's like an artificial honeydew, you know, like the sugary poop, you know, from the aphids and whiteflies and such. And that by itself is a really good attractant and supplemental food for a lot of beneficial insects. Um, uh, an entomologist friend of ours found that it's really good uh, alternate food for spiderlings, the, the hatchling spiders that uh, are really good predators. They eat nothing but bugs, and they get bigger and smaller um, depending upon the food supply. So um, spiders are, you know, really good part of a long-term um, natural enemy complex out there in your farm or garden. So we're not against people spraying pesticides and stuff. Just use stuff that uh, is not going to kill you off and that isn't going to be broad spectrum and um, you know totally disrupt the uh, the uh, environment. So um, there, there's these um, uh, macho guys who like to spray stuff. It's kind of a guy thing, you know, right? <laughs> um, and and so we don't want to take away their their uh, Sprayers, but we just want to put something in there that um, is uh, beneficial, you know, like compost tea and like um, you know some of these uh, soft pesticides. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have my backpack sprayer. Usually, there's things in there like Garrett juice, though, not uh, not pesticides. Um, let's talk a little bit about some specifics. Like, uh, what are like? How would you go about controlling aphids using these ideas? Let's be specific to that one pest. You keep bringing it up, so yeah. I would drill down. I got an aphid problem. I want them gone. What do I do? Mm -hmm. Okay. First off, you look and see if there's um, beneficial insects feeding on them. So uh, there's aphid mummies, these uh, swollen aphids that uh, naturally aphids are translucent, and so you look and see um, if there's some aphids that are. Uh, uh, opaque and kind of look swollen. Those are uh, aphids that have a um, little uh, parasitic wasp inside of them. Aphidius um, is one of the genus of the wasps that do that. And um, so if you got a bunch of those, if you got 20% uh, of um, the uh, aphids are um, there as the, the mummies with the little wasp inside, you don't need to do anything because there's enough uh, beneficial insects there to control the pest. So yeah, just go on and, and check back uh, in a few days to a week. Um, if you don't see anything, then uh, first off, you, you pull out your um, your garden hose and just physically spray them off. That if the um, insects, uh, if the in the uh, rapid colony uh, development phase, aphids don't have wings. And so you knock them off the plant, and they got to walk back. And if you got any kind of life on the soil, there's they're going to be uh, food for something else. And so uh, hosing them off would be uh, uh, kind of like the uh, the first order of uh, magnitude of response or first step. And then uh, if that doesn't work so well, then you can go to the next level, which would be soapy water or one of the uh, fungal sprays. And then. Um, if uh, they're still there, then um, you can consider, you know, releasing some beneficial insects. The um, 
we really like the um, Aphidolides, the aphid midge. It's a little tiny fly, about the proportions of a mosquito. And um, mama flies around and lays an egg next to a colony of aphids. And um, the um, eggs hatch and this little orange maggot goes and sparing the aphids and um, uh, tosses, sucks them dry and tosses them off of the plant. So it leaves your plant clean of the aphids. There's also uh, the common ladybug and uh, lacewing. Uh, they're available as larvae or egg stage or the adult stage. And um, uh, there's surfeit flies. You can't buy those commercially, but if you have any kind of flowering plant, though, around, you'll be able to, um, uh, to, be able to draw those in from the surrounding areas you know, to, to help you with uh, controlling the aphids. Very cool. So, so we so we like thinking about a, a staged response that that you don't just you know pull out the nuclear weapons. Uh, we're not into the uh, see a bug, kill a bug uh, uh, approach. We want to um, see if we can work with the the ecology to um, uh, support the ecology to to bring the pest under control. That means you know that not that the pests are gone. But, you know, that there's a good ratio of the good bugs to the bad bugs so that it um, brings your role, you know, into um, just, you know, kind of walking around, checking on things. It's it, it said that you know, the best thing that a, a farmer or a gardener can put on their their um, on their farm is, is their shadow. And so, you know, going out and looking and observing and, and appreciating all the stuff that's going on is, is a really... Uh, uh, important step of uh, farming and of you know uh, growing good food. Got you. So maybe walk us through some of the other beneficial insects that can be used to control plant pests. Maybe just a few different ones. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of different kinds of basic strategies of, of biocontrol. Uh, one is is the classical um, uh, biocontrol, where you introduce a, a predator parasite that's not uh, not there now, that when you introduce it, it'll grow and develop and overwhelm the pest. And we have some beneficial insects that act like that, but but generally, you know, all the beneficial insects are everywhere around. You just need to you know to foster them. So what we do is called inundative uh, biocontrol, <clears throat> where you put out a significant number of the beneficial insects, so they'll overwhelm the pest population, bring it under control, and then they'll either stay around or, or the, um, the diverse uh, natural enemy complex will come in to maintain control then. And so uh, what we've got in large numbers are uh, lacewings, uh, uh, we used to have lots of ladybugs. Those are um, becoming more challenging to get anymore. And um, um, there's um, Aphidolides, spiny soldier bugs, some uh, aphid parasites, and some particular predators like the um, uh, Podiscus, the um, Pediobius, the um, a uh, little parasitic wasp that eats the um, uh, Mexican bean beetle. You can put out a small number of those. 
and then they will uh, uh, grow and develop over the season and um, keep the uh, uh, Colorado potato beetle uh, under control. So there, there's a wide range of different things, and um, so we um, we've got a, a pretty good website now, and we're working on improving it so that you can log in and and um, check on the um, pest index and and see what kinds of beneficials that we we have to control your particular pest, and and we're available you know by phone. We actually have humans enter our phones, and so you can call in and we can talk you through you know suggestions. About um, that's crazy talk. People answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> We're into high touch here. Yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. So let, let's talk a little bit about nematodes. Um, yeah, there, there's there's different varieties of those that can help control some insect pests. Can you talk to people about how that happens? I yeah. think people think about it less because we don't see them, mm-hmm. right? We don't see them, right. and, and we generally don't see. The things that they attack, we might see the results of that thing, but we don't see the thing itself, at least at the time that they attack it. Right, right. So um, in um, diplomatic circles, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and uh-huh. so uh, often nematodes have a bad rap because they eat your plants. You know, like the the root knot nematodes on tomatoes and and on a number of trees and so on. But um, these are little uh, nematodes that love to eat insects. And so um, you give them some uh, pest insects to eat, and they're, they're really happy. And so there's um, uh, three main species of nematodes, um, the um, uh, HB, heteroditis bacteria for that love to eat uh, beetle grubs. There's uh, SC, the Steiner Nema carpa capsi, that love to eat um, Oh, uh, mole crickets and um, caterpillars and such. And then there's the SF, the Steinonema feltiae, that love to eat maggots, uh, fly larvae. And so uh, for, um, oh, like if you got fleas in your lawn, you can get some of the SC nematodes and mix them with water and just kind of drench them in using like a hose-in sprayer. And um, uh, the nematodes go down into the soil, and they uh, feed on the uh, um, uh, flea larvae and uh, keep them under control. And the nematodes uh, don't um, don't bother humans. They don't bother your pets and so on. So it's a very low-risk way of controlling the, uh, the fleas in your lawn and, and garden areas. There's uh, the... Um, HB nematodes that really love to eat beetle grubs. So if you got a uh, Japanese beetle or um, any kind of uh, grub uh, feeding on the, um, the roots of your grass, uh, you can, um, again, mix those with water and, and water those into your lawn. And the um, nematodes will go and feed on the grubs. And when they encounter a grub, uh, a couple of nematodes will go into the grub and um, reproduce and multiply they uh, release a bacteria that actually um, feeds on and kills the, uh, the grub, and then the nematodes feed on the, um, the bacteria and on the decomposing grub. And then in, from each grub, you'll have 10,000 uh, nematodes emerging from the decomposing carcass to go look for fresh meat. So it's a really great way of controlling a number of uh, crop pests and um, 
uh, lawn and garden pests. And um, uh, again, they're very low risk. We used to be able to say they're safe, but you know, <laughs> nothing's safe anymore. Um, and let's see, some people uh, do use some foliar for thrips. Uh, thrips are little tiny insects that have this rasping mouth part and they feed on all kinds of flowers and soft uh, herbs they like um, uh, like culinary herbs like you'd grow in a greenhouse and so on. So you can mix with those with water and spray those on the um, top part of the plants, usually at night so you can keep the, the plants wet for overnight and they'll work on the top part of the plant. Uh, but mostly it's, it's for uh, insects that are uh, in or near the, um, the root surface or the, the surface of the soil. Awesome, man. So another thing that I hear from my listeners quite a bit is that they have trouble with flies around their livestock, uh, mm -hmm. especially in the early spring, mid-spring. I mean, that's they mm -hmm. kind of blow up. What, what can we do about them? Yeah, um, we do things backwards. Everybody, everybody's trying to get rid of flies, and, and we work real hard to grow them. So we grow about 5 million houseflies every day during the summer here. And um, then we grow this little wasp that feeds on the pupil stage of the fly. And we sell those to farmers and ranchers who are growing animals and don't want to raise flies. So they put these little wasps out, and um, they go and they feed on the pupil stage of fly, take, take out that stage, They reproduce in it and then go looking for more um, um, more uh, flies to parasitize. So it's a really effective. Um, the um, fly uh, life cycle is about 10 days. The fly parasite life cycle is uh, about 21 days. So it's really good to bring the numbers down, but it doesn't um, uh, last all that um, all that long. That to the Flies reproduce really, really quickly. So to, to have a really good control program using the fly parasites, uh, you need to release them on a regular basis. And so that's been the, um, the basis for uh, our uh, business for the last uh, uh, 30, 40 years uh, that um, we just um, take care of our, our fly control customers and then um, uh, Uh, that's a, a really good base for uh, our business. And um, uh, so we, we need to think about at least a three-pronged program that uh, fly life cycles, egg, larva, pupa, adult. Remember high school uh, biology? And um, so you got an opportunity of putting pressure on each one of those life stages. And so for the egg and larval stage, uh, that's in the manure And so if you manage the manure to minimize the fly breeding, then um, you got a lot less problems. So there's a lot of ways of doing that. So um, one is um, um, in uh, grazing situations, if you have dung beetles, then uh, you just um, um, uh, 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 get some dung beetles from, from uh, somebody who's got them. Uh, we're working on setting up a, a, like a sharing page like um, Seed Savers Exchange so people could uh, exchange dung beetles so uh, they get the job done without us being in the middle of it. And um, you release some dung beetles and they, they feed on the, uh, they roll the manure up into balls and then they uh, uh, put it into holes in the ground. So it distributes the, the piles of uh, fresh manure 
and so they're not available for the flies to use. Um, you can run uh, chickens along with your cattle, and um, uh, they peck apart the um, uh, piles of manure for the seeds and for the bugs in it. And so then again, you know, it's distributed and doesn't have um, uh, not a home for the flies. And then um, um, you can uh, pick it up and, and uh, compost it. So like a lot of um, um, uh, riding stables and places like that, they'll pick up the manure. You put it into a compost pile, and as soon as it heats up, then that's not available to the flies to breed in. And then uh, if you take the, the top six inches of, of a manure pile and keep that in place, when you're building the the new manure pile, that top six inches will have these predator mites that feed on the eggs and larvae of the fly, and will have these other little um, um, uh, dung beetles, these these beetles, the lycophodius, that um, live in the manure. They're they're the slurpers. They uh, stay in the manure. They don't. Uh, uh, Roll balls and they feed on the eggs and larvae. So you can build up these 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 uh, fly uh, egg and larval predators in the manure, and so just managing the manure uh, will reduce the number of um, uh, flies that will result from that uh, manure. And then uh, the uh, pupal stage, you release the fly uh, parasites, and then for the adult phase, then um, We've got a uh, fungal pathogen, a Bavaria bassiana, that's specific to flies now that um, you can fog around like you used to do with the uh, pyrethrin sprays. And you can fog it. You can spray it onto the uh, onto the manure. You can spray it onto the animals where the flies come and feed on the animals, especially like the um, the bloodsuckers, the, um, the biting flies. They will pick up the spores from the um, this fungus, and um, the spores on the surface of the flies will start growing, and so they'll uh, kill the fly, you know, from um, uh, this you know fungal infection. And so we can uh, help people put together a, a complete biological program now to control flies in a, a really wide range of situations. And then uh, also for the adults, there's there's the fly traps. There's the, the uh, conventional fly traps that have uh, something stinky, smells like something's uh, dead or rotten, and attracts the fly and mechanically traps them. Um, uh, one of the nice baits for fly traps is just molasses and water. You mix one part molasses with three parts of uh, uh, water, Put that in your uh, uh, fly trap, and that uh, is very effective, uh, fresh to, to attract the flies and trap them. And um, when it ferments, it, you know, it gets a little better, but eh, after about two weeks, it's kind of funky. You need to dump it out and start again. So there's a um, uh, wide range of different products. Then there's these uh, uh, sticky traps that... Um, work for um, uh, mechanically trapping flies. There's this interesting one that is a um, uh, fiberglass um, uh, cylinder that's about eight inches in diameter and about uh, about a foot long. And you cover that with a uh, sheet of uh, sticky material. And that looks like the head of a cattle. 
And the biting flies in particular will sit on that and they'll get uh, stuck on that. And you just peel the, the sticky sleeve off and, and you'll be pulling out some of the biting flies. Those are you know, the ones that uh, cause a, a lot of problems with a, a lot of animals and the, the people who work around the animals. We also have a biting fly trap called the NZI trap. NZI is for Unzi, uh, Swahili for fly. It was developed by a consortium of, of scientists to combat the tsetse fly that causes, that spreads the sleeping sickness in um, Africa and uh, sets up like a little pup tent. And um, it's got some... Um, uh, uh, mosquito netting and some solid portions that are blue and black and um, uh, the flies are attracted think they're going towards the side of an animal they go uh, through this clear portion that looks like they're, it's going between the uh, legs of the animal and they go to feed on the soft underbelly of the animal but they find that they're in a, a trap and they fly upwards to towards the light to escape and they're mechanically trapped in this green cone into, that goes into like a, a jar. And um, they can't find their way out, and they just um, die and dry up in there. Uh, so that's a straightforward visual target, and it's really good for pulling out some of the biting flies. We've got uh, instructions on how to make them at um, a website that we run called um, nzitrap.us. And so people can go there and see, uh, get instructions on how to make it. And we supply them, but um, um, they're made by, we have them made by some people who do really good work and they run like 250 bucks a piece. If you want to make it yourself, you know, the materials only cost about 30, 40 bucks. So it's something you can do at home and dramatically reduce those, those irritating flies. You know, there's, uh, a lot of people out there, they, they have pretty good rela uh, relationships, you know, on their farms and what have you with extension agents. And, yeah. And what they often say is, like, if if this all, stuff all works, why are they telling me to use these toxic, you know, chemicals? Because, yeah. you know, that's what they do for a living. Why is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we've got the best politicians that money can buy. There's a saying from... Uh, Will Rogers, a, a comedian back from our, our, our parents' days, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, the, the, how to say, re return on investment, you know, for us is, is, you know, growing the beneficial insects is about like uh, most farming products, you know, like we're lucky to get 5, 10%, you know, um, uh, profit margin on, on our investment in growing bugs, you know, and stuff like that. With the chemical pesticides, their margin is really great. They, they're probably, you know, usually getting 50, 60, uh, percent margin on selling their products. So they, they develop, you know, these big industries coming out of World War II. Uh, we, um, hammered our, uh, swords, uh, into, um, plowshares, um, the um, chemical uh, uh, explosives, the, the nitrate for explosives we use for making fertilizer and the nerve gas we use for making pesticides. So coming out of World War II, these, these big chemical companies had all this momentum. And so they started selling these, this chemical fertilizer and the um, uh, chemical 
pesticides to people. And um, it, it seemed like really great that you could have, you know, a, a, a small bag of, of fertilizer you could stick under your arm um, and go out and fertilize your field instead of, you know, several truckloads of, of, of stinky uh, manure. And you could use this little uh, uh, pint bottle of pesticide, you know, the 2,4-D and DDT, um, uh, that would kill all the pests on your field. So it, it seemed like marvelous, miraculous science, you know, the better living through chemistry and all that stuff. And so uh, we had a lot of flexibility in our, our, our ecology and we could do a little bit of that, but now it, we're, it's it's going on on you know like the GMO corn and soybeans is like uh, over 100 million acres uh, in the United States this year, and so it's a huge industry, and they have dominated our political uh, system that runs the colleges that do the research that's the basis for the cooperative extension agents to uh, make their recommendations, and so. Um, they are getting paid, um, you know, to do all these trials on chemical pesticides. Mother Nature, you know, isn't paying to do uh, too many of these studies, you know. And so uh, there's not that much research done on, on natural products and natural uh, ways of controlling pests and controlling disease. And so we have this huge institution that has... Uh, built up uh, promoting these chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides. And so we need to uh, question that uh, when our, our cities, you know, want to, to spray a toxic pesticide to, you know, control mosquitoes or, or to uh, control an outbreak of some kind of invading pest. We need to question that and say we want an environment, you know, that is supportive, that is uh, healthy and beneficial to us. We don't want a, um, an, an environment that um, is going to complicate our life. To you know, will be adding to you know our risk of uh, getting cancer. What cancers? At, uh, you know, one and two now. So um, we need to stand up and be counted in our communities and say that we want. We want better. We expect better. And uh, we are going to demand better of our elected officials and the people that our tax dollars are paying to advise us. Um, in California here, uh, the organic farmers, um, a fellow did a, a survey of the projects uh, that the University of California was doing and found that, that there was only about 1% of the projects at all related to anything organic and you know I guess mainly it was like compost or you, you know, using wood chip mulch or something like that um, of all the programs about uh, this is about um, 30 years ago and um, uh, so the the charter of the university was to uh, do research that was relevant to the uh, family farmers and so that research for um, uh, machine harvesting of tomatoes and, and for um, these chemical sprays and stuff uh, benefited the large industrial ag interest, but not the family farmer. 
And so they sued them that, that you know, they're not fulfilling their uh, mission. And so the university um, uh, responded and, and put up some tokenistic money, um, like maybe, you know, 1% of the budget, you know, mm. for uh, sustainable um, uh, agriculture research and development, SEREP program, it's called. And so we've gotten some really good uh, scientists looking at, you know, some of the issues that we care about, you know, what are the the best plants for attracting beneficial insects, you know, how's the best way to use compost and how, you know, what's the, your, you know, the nutrient release rate, you know, over the years and things like that. So we, we've seen some progress along that line. And so um, I encourage everybody to, you know, uh, be a good citizen. And part of that is, is bitching that you need to, tell your elected officials what you want. And when enough of us do that, then we'll see some significant change in, in um, um, uh, this, uh, this government that's uh, supposedly taking care of us. We, we, can, we can hope anyway. I, mm -hmm. I, I put my faith a lot more in the private sector than I do in the state, that's for sure. Um, I, no, I, I'm, I'm with you there, and, yeah. and you know, there's there's um, a lot we can do. Uh, if you look at biocontrol, it's best done on a community basis, and so getting getting together other uh, gardeners in your neighborhood and, and just saying, okay, what are our past problems? Let's uh, see if we can work together cooperatively on these programs. Let's let's you know do this as a community. That's definitely you know the ideal way to go. So many of us don't know our neighbors anymore, and and that's why <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. Another part of the problem is you know let's get to know our neighbors you know that actually live next door, versus this distributed community that's uh, out there in the in the ether you know. Absolutely. So you know, um, there's a lot of different things people can can buy you know insects, yeah. traps, stuff. Can you talk about maybe is there is there some level of DIY that can be done with a lot of this or yeah. you know maybe it's not that I don't want to buy anything but I don't want to buy everything type of thing. Yeah. What do you need to grow a plant? Let, let's go through the basics. Okay, you need um, soil, you need water, you need sunshine, you need um, um, a seed, and um, you need air. You know for the carbon dioxide. You know, all of those, you know, with some exceptions, you know, are, are free. Um, you know, you have to pay for land. I, I think we need to, you know, turn that one around. But, um, you know, go back to the Native American idea of, of just, you know, we're, we're caretakers of it, not, you know, owners of it. But um, all those things are free. And um, uh, so if you just manage those those elements, then you can grow a healthy plant. So. Um, my father-in-law used to disparage the, the people who farmed the farmers. So, um, so now you go into the garden centers, you know, and there's just this huge number of different items, all these different skews you can buy, you know, <clears throat> of stuff to, to grow plant. And um, um, I really love going to these seed swaps and taking, you know, the seeds I've collected and, and uh, sharing them with other people. And so we can you know, get back to these these land races of, of stuff. So all of this you can basically do for, by yourself. There's these wonderful 
uh, development of these, um, like the Korean um, nature, natural farming uh, ideas, collecting the um, indigenous microbes and working with those, and um, you know, developing your own um, uh, fertility uh, producing uh, supplies and stuff like that, and your pest control materials. Uh, these uh, insect eating fungi, you can buy a bottle of the commercial stuff and then grow your own on cooked rice. And um, um, there was a um, uh, area-wide control program for the desert locust in North Africa, and they called this product the green mussel. The uh, spores of the metarusium anisoplea uh, fungus are, are green, and so there would be this these green spores. You just cook up rice, put it in, in um, plastic bags, inoculate it with the... Uh, this fungus it grows, and they can grow up lots of it just you know on plastic bags on shelves at room temperature. Um, so you can do it all yourself, you know, once you learn, you know, how to work with the biology, and that's the the really exciting part for me. That I'm working every day to work myself out of a job here. That you know, guys, you can do this yourself, you know, just you know. Learn to work in harmony with nature, and you can do it all. But, you know, in the meantime, we're here to help you mm-hmm. control the past today and give you some guidance so you can um, um, grow your own beneficial insects by the way that you farm. And so, yeah, you can do it all. Um, um, there's all kinds of um, traps they can make out of you know discarded plastic things god knows we have way too many of those available there's all kinds of like fruit fly traps you can uh put a little bit of um uh, was it tarula yeast in a uh, uh plastic um uh water bottle uh put some holes in the top and then um uh half fill it with water hang that in the tree you trap out the um um, the adults of the um, a lot of the fruit flies. Um, you can make fly traps out of uh, two-liter soda bottles. Just cut off the uh, the kind of uh, conical top of the bottle, invert it, and stick it back into the base, and then put some kind of you know food in that um, uh, the bottom part. And you got a dandy fly trap for house flies, or if you bait it with uh, vinegar for fruit flies. Uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty much, you know, limited by your imagination. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I have a fertile imagination. <laughs> so, um, on, on that note, you, you guys do help people out a lot. Like I was on your site and I was noticing like pretty much if you want to order, people call you guys instead of like click buttons. And I think that's good because... I think you guys want to help people make sure they're getting the right thing at the right time and all. So do you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you guys and work with you and what have you? Yep. So rinconvitova.com, R-I-N-C-O-N, Rincon like the beach. Uh, Vitova, uh, contraction of vital ova, vita, uh, live egg from the Latin, um, two insectaries combined. And, and so we've got a funny name, but we're not all around the planet now, so we'll keep it. So it's rinconvitova.com. And then uh, we've got a number of uh, blogs and um, other presence on, on the web. Uh, uh, bugfarm.us is one of our, our blogs. 
and um, we've got a uh, Facebook page, and uh, let's see, I've got an Instagram account at, uh, oh, what is that? I think it's um, uh, Bug Farmer Ron. And so we've got a presence out there. Just look, you'll find us, and um, uh, feel free to uh, email us at um, our main uh, email address is bugfarm. Um, excuse me, uh, bugnet, B-U-G-N-E-T at rinconvitova.com and happy to discuss, you know, whatever with you and help you set up some kind of program to control your past biologically. And I'll make sure that there's links to all of that stuff in the uh, show notes for you guys today so that you can find that. That's a pretty long list there. Yeah, and then, uh, then oh, phone number. Um, our um, um, 800 number is 800 uh, two four eight bugs b u g s. Okay, that's two eight four seven for the digitally inclined. All right, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us. Like I said, I'll make sure there's resources for all that stuff in the show notes today. Uh, thank you for for spending about an hour with us and giving us a great education. Uh, I found this incredibly informative, Ron. And again, I thank you for being with us today. I appreciate being able to contribute to to the wonderful work that you're doing. Appreciate all that you're doing. Keep it up. Great interview. Lots of incredible information. Really enjoyed having Ron on. We'll probably have him on the air again with us in the future because I just think he is wealth of information. Uh, on that, guys, if you want to support this show and the work that we do so that we can always be bringing you excellent content like we brought you today, consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You can see all the uh, stuff that I've reviewed over the years there, alphabetical and categories. Uh, you can see the most recent reviews. You can just get on over to Amazon and see the deals of the day. And it doesn't matter what you buy. If you start there, you help support us in the work that we do. On that note, though, I do have daily reviews for you. Today I'm bringing a product back around, and I want to give you kind of the bigger story with it today. The product is GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp Fertilizer. This does so much, and I'm going to mainly let you guys read the review today if you want to know all the things that it does. But primarily what it does is, is it provides massive amounts of micronutrients in the form of minerals uh, that most soil is deficient in. And it does a lot to help resistance and disease, insect attack, drought, because it makes plants less stressed. And it just does a lot of great things, and it's really easy to use. And a 16-ounce bottle goes a long way. A gallon really goes a long way. So it, you get a lot of bang for the buck out of it. And I talk about in the interview a lot of different ways to use it, and it fits perfectly with today's episode, which is partly why I, um, I, I went ahead and brought this around today. But here's the bigger reason. I'm leading up to the show that I'm going to do Tuesday next week. We are heading flat into gardening season. I know like it's, it's fixing to be Valentine's Day. It's the mid, middle of February. It's like the depths of winter for some people. But, you know, mid to end of March is we're well into spring. And that's going to happen like that. So it's time to start thinking about either getting the garden beds ready or being ready to get them ready. And so Tuesday's show is going to be all about soil fertility um, and, and, and garden bed prep. We're going to go through my full fertility program. That's why I'm not going to talk about all the things that this product does. Uh, we're going to talk about what you can use if you don't want to use that. We're going to talk about mulching. We're going to talk about feeding soil organisms. We're going to talk about it all. And I'm kind of excited about it. And in addition to my fertility program of what you can get on Amazon, I'm going to be bringing you 
It looks like anyway. I'm going to bring it to you whether I do the, get the discount or not. I'm working on the discount, though. I have found a company, and, and here's what they do. They raise catfish, and the catfish poop. And they have specialized their ponds so that the catfish poop is collected every day. And this fertilizer is made out of catfish poop. So it's kind of like taking the biology of aquaponics and bringing it to your soil, which you can imagine me with all the flow-through wicking beds and aquaponics systems I've built over the years, how much I appreciate that concept for the person with the garden in the ground. And I've been playing with this stuff. You know, I can't do an incredible amount of growing right now because it's cold. And I don't want to go out there in the cold. And my greenhouse is only so big. But the results I've had from it so far are really great. It's not a, just like the, the, the item of the day today. It's not a massive hit of NPK. It's actually less than 1% NPNK uh, each. Uh, but it, what it is is incredibly bioactive. And so I think adding it to my regime is going to blow people up this year. So that's coming. I'm going to work hard. I'm working hard with the guy right now to try to get you the best discount I can. I hope to have that wrapped up by the end of this week. Make that announcement on Monday or Tuesday in, co in conjunction with that show and get you another really great product. But, you know, that one won't be on Amazon. That'll be a direct deal with the, uh, the guy. I always try to do what's best for you guys. Trust me right now, if GS Plant Foods would reach out to me, And we had some kind of a deal where you guys could get a discount. I'd take them right off T-Spaz and just put them into the general you know, uh, MSB support type thing. Uh, I would rather get you guys a discount than make a couple points off of Amazon. It's, it's something there. It's like, you know, it's, it's good money because it adds up. But in the end, my job, I look at my job when it comes to what I do for you is to teach you, to educate you, and to put you in touch with the best deals I can get you on the things that you're going to use in your life or want in your life. And if I can go out and get a company to give you a 20% discount, I would rather give them give you a 20% discount than them give me a 20% commission. I, I turn it. That's one of the main ways I actually, over the years, just a little soliloquy here, extension. Uh, one of the main ways I've gotten you discounts over the years, a company will come to me and say, hey, we have an affiliate program. We pay our affiliates 15%. And I'm like, okay, well, why don't you give 15% off to my customers? We want to protect our street price. Uh, it'll be a private thing, and sometimes they say no. And then I say no back. Uh, and sometimes I say yes. And to me, that's just so much more valuable that I'm able to put money back in your pocket because that makes you my loyal customer. That's how I run MSB. So if you've been thinking about it, like I said, it's on sale this week. Go get on the email list. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on subscribe. That brings us to our song of the day. We are on Valentine's Day Eve, if there is such a thing. And I think there has to be. Any day has an eve, the day before it. Uh, so we have a love song for you today by a gal named Casey Balerni. Balerni? I don't know. I never heard of her before this came through from John Adam on the song list. And it's called I Hate Love Songs. And when you listen to the song, you're like, she doesn't really hate all love songs. Because this song's a love song. Um, she hates fake-ass shit. She hates the fakeness of some love songs. And she's talking more about You know, flowers. I don't think she hates flowers. If you watch the video, she seems to like flowers. I think she hates the expectation that you prove your love through buying flowers. It'll be dead in a week. She hates the artificial nature that the Hallmark holiday of Valentine's Day is all about. 
but she really loves the guy she's in love with. I think there's a huge message there. That said, I am going to play Dr. Phil Jack for just a moment here. And I'm going to tell you guys a secret to make your woman happy, especially if she works in an office or a place surrounded by other women. My buddy Hal used to have this theory that it made a lot more sense for him to go out and buy two really nice steaks and a $10 bundle of roses, bring them home, cook dinner, and give her flowers. And he thought that was a good plan. I pointed out to him it was an okay plan. Women like flowers, but I'll tell you guys what they really like. They like other women to see them get flowers. You are not wrong when you send flowers to her workplace. It's probably worth a few extra bucks once in a while here and there. Now, in line with the song, I don't think it should be an expectation. And I don't think, if you're smart, you should do it for Valentine's Day. Now, if you have some kind of thing with your significant other where Valentine's Day is important, don't pull back now. you got until next year to work that out. I don't want to mess it up on you. But what I'm suggesting, guys, if you ever really want to put your woman in a good mood, pick a time when you ain't done nothing wrong. I realize that might be a rare occasion. Pick a time when it ain't near her birthday. It ain't near your anniversary. Ain't nothing going on. And send flowers to her work. And you can thank me later. And at that point, you may not hate love songs. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Just die in a
But I love